if you have your Bibles with you this afternoon, the word around which we have gathered this afternoon is taken from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Uh, if you've been with us for some time now, you know that our theme is not ashamed. Uh, taken from the book of Acts, or as I would prefer to call it, the Acts of the Resurrected Savior through the lives of his people. This afternoon, we've come to Acts chapter 9, kind of a shifting in the saga of the early church. And I'd like to read, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read all the way through, well, this passage. Oh, have I got the wrong one? Beginning in verse 1. And I'll read through 19a. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from so many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. For here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with his Holy Spirit. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask you, to allow us to find your favor this afternoon. Open up our hearts and our minds to receive this, your word, and may we be transformed by the encounter with your word and your spirit 
Today we pray that you would receive glory from this. In Jesus' name, amen. I sometimes hesitate when I'm about to say something about Singapore. I've been here eight months, but it has taken me far less than eight months to begin to feel very comfortable and safe. Here in Singapore, I've become accustomed to reading about danger everywhere else. In fact, it has helped my prayer life having a wife who has been the past five weeks in another country in which up until half halfway point in this year, they've already seen 154 mass shootings. In Singapore, we're used to feeling, you know, safe. Sherry, Sherry will go walking on the East Coast Park at 4.30 in the morning. She will never go walking at 4.30 in the morning in Ohio. We, we, we're comfortable. But I don't know if you felt this when you read last week a 22-year-old Singaporean mother has been radicalized and suddenly, you know, danger came closer to us. Suddenly, you know, it, it kind of takes the edge off of our comfortable hubris. Not so much kiasu when you're kiasi, right? We suddenly feel like, oh, this, this image of safety is, has got a few cracks in it. But I want to suggest to you this afternoon that there are some extraordinary godly lessons we can learn when danger comes close. Because when, when danger comes close, suddenly life comes into to a much clearer focus. So suddenly things that really ought to matter really do matter. And we're going to see in this passage this afternoon that this is what was happening to the people who followed the way. Not called followed Christ or not called Christianity at this point in the first century Christians were called followers of the way, short for the way of life. And suddenly for all of them, danger had come very close to them. Remember, it began with the martyrdom of that first Christian who died for the name of Christ named Stephen. And then the church was scattered, everyone except the apostles who remained in Jerusalem. And one of those who was scattered was a deacon named Philip who first went to Samaria and, and planted the seed of the gospel. So much so that he must have been exhausting all the baptizing he was doing. And then he went south to Gaza, where he met an Ethiopian treasurer who heard the gospel and was transformed by it and returned to his home nation. And within 300 years, Ethiopia became the first Christian nation on earth because of obedience that's what discipleship is about. But let's just by way of introduction, I'm forgetting to move this, uh, look at these first two verses. Suddenly a new episode from the dramatic expansion of the gospel in Samaria and in Africa. Then we 
get rushed back to Jerusalem and this young religious lawyer named Saul, the very same one who held and guarded the clothing of those who stoned Stephen, he had figured out a way to elevate his status by becoming a religious extremist. And he went to the high priest, Scripture says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Now, this word is fascinating, this word breathing, because it doesn't mean breathing out. I I initially assumed that that meant that every word was a threat. Every word that came out of his mouth was murder. But actually, the word in Greek is breathing in. His radical religious extremism was so convictional, he craved threats and murder like his lungs craved oxygen. Just breathing it in with every breath. This man went to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked for letters to every synagogue in a foreign city, Damascus, which is now in Syria, asking for the authority to find these disciples of Christ, any followers of the way, and bring them back in shackles to Jerusalem. Saul's religious extremism was good for his career. In just two chapters, he'd gone from a young man on the sidelines guarding the clothing of those who were doing dirty deeds, dirt cheap, and he was right in the middle of it now. He had elevated himself in authority. He had leveraged his hatred for these apostate, heretic Jews to a position of great authority. And he was granted authority that extended even 150 miles from Jerusalem right into the heart of Damascus. It's, um, by the way, from this story that many believe we get our English expression, get off your high horse. Uh, I um, remember as a primary Sunday school student sitting in Mrs. Tottenham's class, and some of you who um, were part of GBC from the very beginning, you, you know the teaching procedure, right? The teacher of the children's class sits with the Bible on her lap, and she holds up a Sunday school picture And I didn't realize until I began teaching Sunday school that they didn't actually have the story memorized because all of the words of the story were on the back of the picture, right? You remember that too, right? And and Mrs. Tottenham showed me the picture of Saul being knocked off his high horse by the power of God. And, And so from that time on, I remember this. As a time in which God knocked a proud man down off of his high horse. That, you know, if you've traveled in the West, you know, like all of our heroes, they, they ride high horses. We like our heroes on, on horses. Like, you know, this emperor, Octavian. They look, you can't really tell because it's, it's not so clear, but this is a muscular horse. You know, basically, for us, you know, a saddle is like a traveling throne on an animal. All of our heroes rode these because even short heroes look awesome on a muscular 
horse. And so, so we often use this phrase, get off your high horse. If, if we're talking to somebody and they seem to be full of pride or full of hubris, we will tell them, get, get off of your high horse. You've got such an inflated view of your place in the world. In fact, we often tag that phrase with the previous phrase, which is, how did you become so high and mighty? Get off of your high horse. And Saul's passion to destroy this heretic Jewish sect put him up on a high horse. But he was about to discover that even those with great authority bringing threats to others will also be exposed to another great holy danger. When danger draws near, not only is the threat obvious, but many other things about life becomes obvious. Like this, verses 3 through 5. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I don't know if you are sensing this, but earlier this week in my office as I was reading this, I immediately begin to sense in my spirit that I have made persecution so much about me. Right? I mean, isn't it true? We, we are anxious in the Christian community about the growing global restrictions on religious freedoms. And by that we mean by our religious freedoms. In Europe, we used to be able to preach door to door. In Canada, we could go to schools and preach good news. Now we're not allowed to do anything like that. Oh, we're so persecuted. We, we, we grieve and pray for the persecuted church globally. We grieve at the slaughter of Christians around the world. We are anxious. We pray. We grieve for ourselves. But notice, Jesus did not say to young Saul, stop persecuting my people. He he didn't say, I'm here to confront you, that you've been harming my disciples. He said, it is I. I am the one you persecute. Do we understand this, GBC? This is really important because we're getting ready to move back into 37, no, 37 Tannery Lane. That's the office. What, what number? 17 Mata Road. Right? And, and we're, we keep talking about moving back to the church. Even though we know the church is not a building. But I want to say to you, the church is not even just God's people. We are the body of the living Christ. We are the visible presence of Christ in Singapore. It's not about criticizing a pastor or or your brother or sister. When we criticize God's church, we're harming Christ. I am he. I am the one you are persecuting. But the, the second thing we're going to notice is um, there's, there's actually no horse 
that the Apostle Paul tells this testimony two other times in the book of Acts. And at no time, not once, not three times, is he ever riding a horse. Here's what we need to be aware of. Not everything we believe is in the Bible is actually in the Bible. Because when Christianity, over thousands of years, in various different fields and contexts around the world, eventually people embrace Christ, and then the culture becomes, quote-unquote, Christian. And, And when there is no discernible difference between my culture and the culture of Christ, then we're going to believe things about the Bible that are not in the Bible because our theologians are no longer students of the world. They're cultural icons. They're singers and poets and artists. I remember, I think it was in the early 90s when one of the young people in my church said, hey, pastor, have you heard this great Christian song? I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. Okay, because you're on drugs. That is not a Christian song. But we believe it must be Christian because it kind of sounds like Christian and it's come out of a Christian culture when there is no discernible difference between my culture and the culture of Christ. Either I believe stuff that is not in the Bible and so become content to not change or I'm already in heaven. Caravaggio was one of the most famous painters in the 15th century. This was his image of Saul on the road to Damascus. It's kind of dark. Can you, can you see it? So his vision was, surely he was a man of authority, so surely he was riding a horse, and since the 15th century, Sunday school teachers sat with the Bible on their lap and a photograph, not a photograph, a painting. You see, this is what happens when we get so proud. Now, now here's the truth of this to me. There was no horse. And there is no horse. Whatever it is you think has elevated you beyond others, whatever it is that has caused you to feel a sense of pride and has given you permission to look down on others, that thing is a myth. And there's going to come a day when the danger of death is going to draw near and you're suddenly going to realize that thing that made me feel so competent, that, that high horse of my education and my heritage and my socioeconomic status That thing is a mirage. It's an illusion. Because no brilliant Singaporean student is going to be lying on their deathbed and saying to their loved ones, okay, I'm dying, but at least I did very, very well on my own levels. There, there, There is no person who has spent 
all of their career fighting to get ahead and and make a good take-home package. There's not even one of us who's going to lie on our deathbed and say, you know, I am dying, but thank goodness I got that promotion over that ambitious co-worker of mine. Because on that day, we'll know I, I, I got no horse. It was just an illusion lent to me by my culture, by my own pride. It caused me to missee my world. Because you see, when you're constantly looking down on your world, you lack the discernment to look up and see God. And so on this day, Divine danger drew near to a man on a high imaginary horse, and it knocked him off. Well, second thing we're going to see is that strong men, mighty men, men of authority, when danger draws near, they suddenly submit. Verses 6 through 9 says this, But arise, Jesus speaking, And enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither drank nor ate. See, this man, Saul was a man of influence. He enjoyed authority. He had authority to arrest everyone who didn't agree with him. That's serious authority. That's the authority of a dictator. That's the kind of authority he enjoyed. He could bind them and drag them off to prison. He had the strength and a power and authority over their very breath. He had authority over their freedom. This was a man of significant authority. And then that powerful man was knocked off of his imaginary horse. And suddenly that man of influence, that powerful man, the man with lots of authority, had to be led into the city like a toddler. Someone had to hold his hand and guide him The ones he led suddenly were leading him. Saul experienced the illusion of power, just like Bill Watterson's Calvin. I I don't know if you read Calvin and Hobbes, but I do. Calvin is my favorite philosopher. In this comic strip, Calvin is looking down on some dried flowers. He's saying to them, so you, you want some water, huh? Well, I've got a big can of it here. It's up to me to decide if you get water or not. I'll decide your fate. Your very lives are in my hands. Without me, you're as good as dead. You don't have a chance unless there's rain. You see, even seven-year-olds can so 
easily become authoritative despots. That's the problem with older brothers, Matthew. No, I'm sure it's not true of you. But my brother, 17 months my senior, he had authority over me in all ways. He even told me something very similar. It's up to me whether you live or die. And when you're five, that is real. That that's truth. You, you see, we are that depraved. We imagine that we can be in charge of everyone. And yet, nobody has died and left us in charge. We don't need permission, though. And just like Calvin, we eventually find out that there is a God who makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. And the sun comes up whether or not I grant it permission. Suddenly, even powerful men, strong men, submit. Revelation comes when we learn to look up. Third, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Let let me just uh, put it this way. That's too small for you to read. Obedient disciples doubt. I, I need to help you with this. Because for some of you, the evil one has drawn close and have reminded you how fragile your faith is because you have anxiety, because you wonder when trouble comes, what is God up to? Let me assure you, obedient disciples do have doubt. Ananias was an obedient disciple. You know he was because he said the first phrase of every man who met God and declared his obedience. And that phrase is, here I am Lord. It's indicative of a man who has turned his face toward the Almighty, who has looked up and spied greatness. It is what Abram said, just as God was about to test him, just as God was about to say, Abram, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. He said, Abram. And Abram's response was, here I am, Lord. It's the same response Jacob had when Jacob was called by God. And Jacob's response was, here I am. It was the same response that Joseph had when God spoke to Joseph and said, go to your brother's They're about to throw you in a pit. Go to your brothers. And Joseph said, here I am, God. It's the same response that Moses had. It was the same response of Isaiah when he was in the temple. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Heard the whisper of God. Who shall we send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord. This is the response of an obedient disciple. But obedient disciples have doubts. 
doubts like those expressed by Asaph in Psalm 73, verses 12 through 14. This man who loved the Lord and wrote songs of worship for the people of God, he also wrote these words, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. But me, all in vain have I kept my heart pure. All in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been intensely stricken and rebuked every morning. Obedient disciples have doubts. Martin Luther is a hero of the Reformation. He was a hero who had doubts. He wrote this, For more than a week I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost to me. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. John, or sorry, Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. I think when a man says, I never doubt... It is then quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, you poor soul. I'm afraid you are not on the road at all, for if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much more ashamed of yourself as even to say, It is too good be true. And I love these words of John Calvin, who had an obedient heart and yet wrote these words, for unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts and we are so inclined to it that not without hard struggle in each one are we able to persuade himself of all that we confess with our mouth, namely, that God is faithful. Do you, do you understand that you should relax and be comforted in the work of Christ? It is faith in His work about which we can be confident. It is because we say with the apostle, I know whom I have been. What? I am persuaded to believe that he is faithful to keep that which I've committed to him. Not that I'm faithful because my lack of faith troubles me every day. Obedient disciples, we have doubts Don't allow the evil one to convince you that your doubts are a sign of personal failure. Our doubts are an opportunity, a platform for a faithful God to prove himself. I have already proven the waste of a life engaged in his own efforts and passions. My faith is not in my improved religious performance. My faith is in his work on the cross 
and daily in me. And God received the doubts of this obedient Ananias. It gave the Lord opportunity to prove himself to this man. That's why obedience is the key to discipleship. The key is not how much Bible information you know. The key is not how often you sit in these pews and listen to a preacher preach. The key is how often do I say, here I am God. Doubts and imperfections, here I am and then I obey. Finally, verse 17 and 19. The gospel is evident or obvious as his people are committed to obedience. Beginning in verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. It wasn't a long argument. God said, go. Rise and go. Ananias was obedient. He rose and he went, entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I, I, I don't think, right, I need to point out that Ananias was not an apostle. He was not a pastor, nor was he even a deacon. Ananias was a disciple who in his commitment to obedience discipled. We reproduce who we are And in obedience, as we obey, it feeds our faith. Obedience is the food of the faithful. As we say yes to God, we see him at work, and that feeds our faith. Now, this is an unfair trick question because we're Singaporean. But what do you suppose... The first act of this newborn disciple named Saul is, after not having eaten for three days, he was baptized. This is the biblical model. As disciples learn to be obedient, the first act of obedience is they are immersed in the identity of Christ. Why? Because that shows the power of the cross. This is why the mode of baptism matters. Because you see, religious activity, I can cleanse myself, but only God can raise the dead. First act as a disciple, was to model obedience, not eat, but to feed his faith through obedience. And he was immersed, and then he rose, resurrected, 
Now, here, here's something I've observed at 27 years serving in, well, everywhere. We have this view that when we pray that prayer and receive Jesus into our life, we become Christians. But when we're baptized, that's when we change our religion. And oftentimes, I've encountered people struggling with baptism, and they think, you know, if I'm baptism, then I'm changing my religion from Presbyterian to Baptist or Buddhist to Baptist. I'll just pray that prayer. I'm still a Christian, right? And I will say, right. I I will say, right. But biblically, as we have gathered around this word this afternoon, the Apostle Paul was not changing his religion from Judaism to Christianity. The Apostle Paul, in that moment, was losing his religion. Because no more was he depending on his religious conviction that ended up in the slaughter of others who didn't share his religious conviction. No more would his status before God depend upon his own religious performance. Now and forever, his status before the living God was dependent upon the work of Christ on the cross. That's the power of identifying with him in baptism. I'm going to land this plane right now. Um, I don't know how many of you recognize this face, but for Canadians, it's really obvious. This, this is the man who owns a sardine company. Because all of our sardines came in a can with his face on it, Oscar Sardines. I didn't realize until this week as I was doing some research that this is actually King Oscar of Sweden and at one time Norway, a joint kingdom. Now, Oscar was married, his queen was Sophia, and together they had four children, three sons, one daughter, or sorry, four sons. Uh, But Oscar also had five other nieces and nephews, children. He was a bit of a ladies' king. The, the interesting thing of, about King Oscar II of Sweden is, I mean, he, he ruled for 35 years until his death in 1907. He had four sons, uh, but only three are listed as having any kind of inheritance. Only three were listed as heirs to the throne. Of Sweden. And as I looked into this, I realized it, it is because of what was called the Ebba Monk scandal. Ebba Monk uh, came uh, from a good family, but not from royal blood. She was the handmaiden of King Oscar II's first son's wife, Queen or Princess Victoria. And in the process of serving the princess, she got to meet other members of the royal family. And this, by the way, is Ebba Monk. And in the process uh, of serving the daughter-in-law of the king, Oscar III, curiously named Oscar because he had the same persuasions as his father. He loved the ladies, 
kind of the Prince Harry of Sweden, right? He, he just really loved the girls. And, and he came a, a, around to visit his brother and, and not only, of course, knew his brother's wife, but met his brother's handmaiden, Ebba, and talked sweet prince royal thoughts to her ears, whispered scandalous things to her, but Ebba just happened to be a follower of Jesus. And in response to a man on a high horse, she was not ashamed of the gospel. And she shared good news of Jesus Christ with this man, Oscar III, heir to the throne. And because the gospel is the power unto God for salvation, this man was transformed. So he asked for her hand in marriage. It, it, it wasn't that he was catting around that was scandalous. It was that he would marry his sister-in-law's handmaiden. That was scandalous. He was out of the family. He was sent away for two years to consider his bad decisions. When he came back two years, he returned to his wife. They left for England and lived in relative anonymity for the rest of their lives, just doing Christian ministry. While in England, a friend who knew his story wrote him and said, Hey, Oscar, do you have regrets? And in his return letter, Oscar former royalty, formerly a man on a high horse, wrote these words. My dear friend, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail and you know that hymn? This was a man who gave up everything for the sake of the cross. So he gladly proclaimed, I would rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I don't know what road you're on. I don't know what high horse you're traveling it on. I don't know how God, the divine danger, finds you today. But I wonder if you would at least say this. Here I am. Here I am. I'm, I'm turning my face to you. I refuse to live all of my life on this fake horse, looking down on my world. So today, look up and say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. 
while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. You know, Oscar III wasn't the only one who had everything, including regret. Napoleon Bonaparte led France to amazing victory. The Napoleonic Empire controlled all of Western Europe. And then as death drew near, Napoleon wrote these words. A little man who went through life on a high horse. That emperor wrote these words. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we all founded empires, and upon what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? But Jesus Christ founded his empire upon the love of a cross. And at this hour, while all men have abandoned me, millions would die for him. This afternoon, I don't want to ask you if you're ready to die for him. Because it is much, much more difficult to turn your face to him and say, here I am, Lord. I will live for you. And every day of my life, I will breathe in not threats and murder, but I will Breathe in grace and mercy and everything you ask of me, I will say, yes, Lord, for your glory, equip me to represent the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, maybe you sense the Lord has met you here in this place this afternoon. Would you dare to whisper a prayer of obedience in your heart, through your doubts, through your anxieties? Would you dare to whisper in your own heart, Lord, I am here. My face is turned toward you. Speak for your servant is listening. Father God, I thank you that still today you wait to hear the prayers of your people. We bless you that you provide us with all we need, strength and perseverance to say yes to you. So I pray for us that you would have the pleasure all around this room of hearing us, your people, say, here I am. 
glorify yourself in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise as we respond in song.